If you've joined us during worship, warm welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, if you could turn to Romans chapter 12, we are doing a short little series entitled Orthopraxy. You'd be forgiven for not knowing what that means. It's describing a, a kind of community. What does it look like for the community of God, for the people of God, to be orthodox, to be rightly ordered? And we've looked at a couple of weeks, a few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of serving one another with our gifts. Last week, we looked at the idea of this genuine love, this real love, the love of Christ, letting that love be embodied in our community. Not a kind of superficial veneer of kindness, but of genuine love for one another that is manifested in all sorts of ways by generosity and hospitality and commitment to one another. And this week... We want to look at harmony. We're going to look at Paul's instruction to the church to be a place of harmony, of peace. To be reconciled to each other. To be a community of reconciliation. As we unpack these verses, it's right that we see that there are two directions that Paul is speaking. He's speaking to the community, the people of God. How will we live together? And he's speaking to our posture towards outsiders. And next week, we're going to look at that. But this week, we're going to restrict our focus to peace, harmony within the people, within the body of Christ. So if you want to turn to Romans chapter 12, I'll read the first couple of verses because they define the rest of the chapter. And then we're going to go on to verse 14 to 21. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now jump down to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what is harmony? You see verse 16, we're going to really focus on that one instruction in verse 16, Live at harmony, live in harmony with one another. But I think the word harmony, it's a kind of vague concept that I think feels quite superficial to us. So we need to define it. Well, first of all, it's a kind of one-mindedness. That's what it literally means. A a one-mindedness, a single-mindedness, a kind of unity of focus together. 
Last week, we talked about the idea of a team, the idea of a group of people running in the same direction. And because we have share a common salvation, because we, as followers of Christ, have all um, been saved, all experienced Christ uh, drawing us to himself, there's a one-mindedness, a common salvation story, a common focus, a common desire to surrender our lives in every way to follow Christ. It's a one-mindedness. But I think it should feel very different. Harmony speaks about the kind of the nature of a a group of people, the relationships that exist in a group. Think if I was to describe two families to you. Maybe you go into one family and you see there's a kind of um, bit of a tone of, of underlying tension. And you know that that brother doesn't talk to that sister and that cousin doesn't really like that aunt. And there's all sorts of simmering tensions beneath the surface, a lingering sense of resentment. But contrast it with another family where, yeah, they're, 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 there's difficult things and they sometimes have difficult moments, but they love each other. They work through the conflict. There's, there's a sense of affection, of unity, a sense of affinity together. That is the kind of two contrasting pictures that I want you to have in your mind when we think about harmony. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul puts his finger on this so well when he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, slander. That, you know, insulting people behind their back or saying wrong things about someone. Anger, malice, wrath, bitterness. You've got that picture of a kind of dysfunctional family that kind of resent and, and, and there's all sorts of broken relationships. No, he says instead, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Remember last week we spoke about the idea of familial affection, brotherly love. We saw, we see all the way through scripture, the idea that the church is intended to be a family, but not a dysfunctional family, not a family with all sorts of little warring moments and conflicts and lingering sense of disagreements between each other. No, a harmonious family living in peace. What's really important is we understand this is not a superficial harmony. Some of you may say, well, I come to church and there's no kind of direct conflict going on. We don't see people standing up during the sermon and and arguing and shouting with one another. Maybe it feels quite harmonious, doesn't it? What you've got to see is this is not a veneer of harmony, just like we saw last week. It's not a veneer of love. This is genuine relationships. Remember, the picture we have is of a, a really tight group of people. In this, in this uh, chapter, it talks about them mourning, uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and weeping with those who weep. It speaks of a kind of depth of relationship where we start to share in each other's life experiences. As some of you get married, we're rejoicing with you. As some of you go through suffering, we are weeping with you. It's a sense of deep affinity for one another, shared experience, shared relationships together. And the problem is that harmony is very easy when you don't really know each other when you don't really have relationships. But if you have genuine, deep relationships with one another, then harmony is actually really difficult. The, uh, this call to harmony is really hard. And if you don't feel that, then actually I would suggest perhaps you're either naive about human relationships or we haven't really understood what real harmony looks like. Why is it hard? Well, because conflict is inevitable in human relationships. We are going to hurt each other. We could do it un- unintentionally. You could organize a social gathering and not include a couple of people. Perhaps just, you didn't get right. You, know, you just thought, who do I want to invite around my house? But actually, that person feels really hurt. Or maybe you, you, know, you praise someone else, but somebody else, their ego is offended because you weren't praising them for something they did. 
Or perhaps you're uh, just, you know, someone else is suffering, you know, and, and you don't message them, you don't look, you don't, they just kind of slip from your mind, and actually they're really hurt because they were suffering and you didn't step in and engage with their suffering. We are going to hurt each other. Actually, we're going to hurt each other because of the reality of sin. That human beings are sinful, that our hearts are evil above all things, and that we're going to be, sometimes we're going to be rude to each other. Sometimes we're going to be unkind to each other. Sometimes we're going to take against somebody. We, our ego is going to be offended, and we're going to say, I don't want to talk to that person anymore. Just think for a moment. The people you love are the people who hurt you the most. That is a truism. If you're married, you know the reality of that. If you're in a family relationship, you know the reality that the people you love the most are going to hurt you. So the more we press in towards deep community, the more we pursue this kind of genuine love that Paul is calling us to, the more we're going to encounter the reality that our hearts are sinful and we're going to hurt each other. We're going to experience conflict. I think this is accentuated for a number of different reasons in, this, in, in, in our context. One is inherent diversity. Put it this way. If you're exactly from the same background and all think the way and are exactly the same cultural background, then actually, there's an, in a sense, you can superficially appear with that one-mindedness, with that sense of harmony, because you all kind of have been taught to think in a similar way. We are so grateful and delighted that grace is a multi-ethnic church that represents something of the diversity of this city. And that's a wonderful thing. That's something we push towards. We rejoice in that. But we recognize it actually makes things harder. Because if, as people come from different backgrounds and different parts of the world and have different worldviews and have all sorts of different approaches to life, whether it be uh, the way you raise your children or the way you do hospitality or the way you communicate, actually those differences are going to make conflict harder. Because it's going to be harder to understand each other, harder to get on the same page, harder to communicate, to resolve conflict. Actually, I think you see this even in just the fact that we all are different people in general. We have different personalities. Some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts. Some of us are really pre-planned, some of us ride by the seat of our pants. Um, there's, there's a sense of the different personality types within us. and that, that's, that, We're going to rub each other the wrong way because we're going to do things differently to how someone else might pr- prefer them to be done. But also, and this is the real rub, we moralize those differences. We start to say, my way of doing things, if you're a really planned person, I'm a very unplanned person, very unstructured, working very hard to have any kind of structure in my own life. Um, when, when, if, you're, if you're one of those people who said, look, you know, if you do something, you should do it with a couple of days in advance. Please don't come and work with me, because I'm basically always working up to the deadline. And that's, that's, I work best that way. Some of you are already shaking your heads because you find that difficult. I think I've warned Zach at least in advance of him coming to work with us that he's going to experience these kind of challenges. My point is we moralize our differences. We start to look down on other people because they do things in a different way to us. A sense of superiority. There's also just the, the specific challenges of disunity within a church context, let alone all the relational challenges that we face just in, in, as human beings. There's also the fact that we sometimes doctrinal differences can create a sense of superiority, a sense of, oh, I can't believe they think this, and what, you know, all sort, or even just a partisan spirit. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. There's a sense sometimes in churches where certain people like certain leaders, certain people like certain leaders, and there's a sense of, of, of uh, kind of differentiation. I think this has been accentuated by lockdown. Lockdown makes it really hard to resolve conflict. 
You get frayed relationships. So you have less relational capital. And because there's less relational capital, then there's less willingness to want to resolve that conflict. It's easier in a context like we've been in, in fact, to be honest, it's easy in this city anyway, to withdraw from one another rather than do the hard work of resolving conflict. It's easier to ghost the church, to ghost other people. And I would argue it's impossible to do reconciliation via a screen. It's easy when you're not really in the same proximity with each other, and we've all not been in proximity with each other to the same extent as normal, to start to build a kind of... um, one-dimensional picture of another person, to other that person, to start to um, kind of uh, character assassinate them in your mind and to kind of, just to kind of make them an evil person rather than actually just accepting the reality that there's some good and some bad about everybody. So it's accentuated by lockdown. It's easy to build a false narrative about others. Some of you would say, as I say all of this, though, I don't experience conflict in the church. What, how is this relevant? I, I don't experience any conflict in our, in our family. Well, first thing I would say is this has universal applicability in your life. If you experience relationships with other people, you will experience conflict, or at least the underlying things that might then cause conflict. If you're a human being with desires, if you're a human being with relationships, you will experience conflict, and you need to be prepared to deal with that. This has application in your relationships, your friendships, your housemates, every context of your life that you interact with other people. But also... I think it speaks to the idea that we, we need to be beware, uh, aware of the risk of a veneer of harmony. Harmony starts in the heart. You may say, I never have conflict with people, but do you avoid certain people? Do you intentionally withdraw from certain relationships because they subtly said something once to you and therefore you just think, I'm just going to ignore them. I'm not gonna re-. They don't even know it, but you, actually there is conflict going on in your heart. Or... Perhaps you feel a certain sense of superiority to other people. You don't say it, but there's a reason why you only interact with those people and not those people. Or the reason why you, you d- don't push in and press into relationships there and, you, and just stay with this group of people you know. Actually, sometimes there can be that, that com- the, the roots of conflict going in the heart, I would argue, of every human being. I think I would also just emphasize that we need to address this proactively. I've spent a number of time, number of amount of time uh, working through conflict and reconciliation with different people, um, mediating and kind of resolving conflict. And I, I, I don't want to deal with this just defensively. I don't just want to approach and address it when it comes up. I'd much rather say we as a people of God want to be prepared for the inevitability of conflict, that when it arises, we know how to deal with it. Because I think there's some kind of um, an intuitive assumption that we kind of know how to do this, and we're pretty good at conflict. But actually, when the rubber hits the road, our ego gets in the way. The inner lawyer comes out. There's all sorts of things that, that we've, we thought we knew how to deal with the theory. But actually, when it comes to the practice, we're really rather less good than we think we are. Actually, I would go even further and say, you've got to see the way Paul takes harmony really seriously. Harmony is essential to the life of the body of Christ for a number of reasons. First of all, harmony is the fruit of the existential reality that Paul has just painted for us in the rest of the passage. He's spoken about a body, he's spoken about a family. Think about those two images. They are um, physical, permanent images. Think about divorce, separation. That is not a good thing in the Bible. It's not a good idea from God's perspective. Why? Because the, the idea of a family is a permanent union. Think about the idea of um, a body and of amputation. That's not an attractive idea. There's something deeply wrong if you have to amputate some part of the body. So these pictures do not lend themselves to separation, to conflict, to bitterness, to grievances. 
In fact, the Bible goes even further and says, you've been drawn into the unity of the Godhead. In John chapter 17, Jesus says this. He's praying for the church. He says, he's praying for us, actually, praying for the people who would come after the disciples. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So they may be brought to complete unity. It's very easy to miss there, but what Jesus is saying is quite mind-blowing. He's saying, not only do you have a unity that reflects the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in loving unity for all time, no, actually, it says you've been drawn into that loving relationship. You have a unity with Christ and a unity together that is kind of almost images or, or actually been part of, becoming almost joined with in unity with the Godhead. Just think about the way the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, related, the way God himself has related to himself throughout all eternity. There's no conflict there. There's no bitterness. There's no rancor. There's no grievances. There's no ongoing issues. It's perfect peace, perfect love, perfect harmony. That is the picture of how the church is meant to be. That is the complete unity that Christ calls us to. And this is why disunity is a serious problem. This is why you see Paul challenging it. You see it in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses how some of them follow Paul, some of them follow Apollos. And he argues, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Paul is concerned by their disunity. See, in the book of Philippians, it's amazing. It's a letter, remember, it's a letter that probably was read out to the church as they gathered. And at one point, he makes a very specific instruction to two women, to Yodia and Synthache, to be of the same mind in the Lord. He's saying, look, I know there's a disagreement between these two women. As you hear this letter, think about how they would have felt. Probably a little bit awkward that Paul's calling them out in front of everybody else. But I think it shows the gravity to which Paul's saying that. These women had served Christ in some way with him. And and he's saying, look, don't let them now argue. Don't let them now break into conflict. That's in deep contradiction to who they are in Christ. It's inconsistent with your salvation. It's inconsistent with who you are, that you have been adopted into Christ. You are now of one mind together. You have been brought into this perfect unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we act in conflict, when we let grievances and bitterness build up within within the church family, we contradict the reality of who we are in Christ. The last reason I think we need to deal with this is because harmony is beautiful. You remember Andrew spoke on... um, Psalm 133, uh, speaking about how good and precious it is that brothers dwell in unity. And the pictures that the, the psalmist gives is like oil running down the beard or dew on Mount Hermon. And it's, those are evocative, um, visceral, physical images. You're meant to be able to smell the oil. You're meant to be able to, you know, you go into, you can just smell and feel the dew. There's a sense of, 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 of beauty in those pictures. Harmony is beautiful. Unity is beautiful. Think about when you go into a family and you see a family working well together who love each other, who actually have affection for one another, where there's not ongoing griping and conflict. There's something really beautiful about that. And so I want to give you a prescription for harmony. 
I want to give you a, a vision. Of, I want to give you the very practical tools that Paul gives us here and elsewhere in the New Testament of how we can become a community of reconciliation. Notice I don't say a community of fake harmony where we don't address things. No, we, are, we, are, we want to be a people who embody the reconciliation that we've received from Christ. Embody that forgiveness, that gospel that unites us together in our relationships together. So what does that look like? I want to give you four ideas. The first one is active pursuit of reconciliation. There's nothing passive about this picture, these instructions that Paul gives the, the, the Roman church. Harmony requires an active pursuit of reconciliation. Note in verse 18, it says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends with you, live peaceably with all. Now, some of you, that almost lends itself to kind of passively sitting there saying, well, I don't have any conflict with anyone. I'm just going to kind of get on with my life. And maybe if you know, someone offends me, then maybe I might have to do something. No, quite the opposite. Saying, if insofar as it depends on you, there's a sense of urgency, the sense of, have you done everything you can to address any conflict, any bitterness, any grievance that might arise? Because that is your responsibility as a member of the body of Christ. Harmony requires us to actively address conflict. And the great enemy here, as I think the enemy of much of the Christian life, is passivity. Passivity. That is the enemy we must avoid. Christians have the means to resolve, to confront sin and resolve conflict. And yet we have the regular pattern of avoiding conflict, of not addressing it, hoping that it will blow over, hoping that maybe things will get better, but actually the opposite happens the little minor grievance becomes a bit bigger and bigger and you start, your heart perhaps becomes bitter. And actually, what started off as quite a small thing can become a, 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 a kind of increasingly large gap between you and the other person until eventually you get relational breakdown. Christ has given us a model for addressing and resolving conflict that we need never let those grievances lead to relational breakdown. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives really simple, but I think very neglected uh, structure or kind of for, almost a kind of formula of, of how we are to address conflict. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take to one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. It sounds pretty simple, but I think we neglect this. Doesn't, by the way, this doesn't, by the way, mean you can take this to another extreme and think I must address every time anyone sins against me, anytime someone hurts me. The Bible is also really clear. In 1 Peter, it talks about love covering over a multitude. In Proverbs 19, um, it says it's to, a man, to someone's glory to overlook an offense. Saying it's to your credit. If you can forgive someone without confronting them, if you can deal with the, someone hurts you, if you forgive them and without having to talk to them or anything, that's great. That's wonderful. It's to your credit if you can do that. But if you find yourself with a kind of festering or ongoing chewing over in your mind, that, that sense of hurt that someone's done to you, or you find yourself talking to other people about what they've done to you, then you know you need to address it with the person. And yet we, we so often avoid this. Why do we avoid addressing it? Well, I think for a few reasons. First of all, we deny it. We pretend there's no problem. 
Perhaps we're worried about the relational implications. Think, if I raise this with this person, then our relationship's going to be broken. Actually, I would say quite the opposite. If you raise it with this person, your relationship will be stronger as a result. So rather than uh, kind of, it's almost neglecting the relationship to not raise the issue, actually by addressing it, you're saying, I care about this relationship, so I want to resolve what I feel has become an issue between us. Some of you are going to struggle with this, particularly if you're an empathetic person. If you're someone who really understands people, then actually the idea of having to address conflict with someone actually becomes harder because you understand the implications it's going to have for them. You understand they are going to feel sad when you address this with them, potentially. You know that you're going to cause discomfort for them. And actually, ironically, for those of you who are empathetic, you need to remember that this is for their good. That this is a loving thing to do, to address something with someone, because you want to help them grow. You want to help them address the issue that's that's caused sin between you. If you don't, and they continue to hurt you, and eventually you just kind of passively drift away from each other because you think, I can't do this relationship, or, or they continue doing this to other people, that's not a loving thing. Perhaps some of you feel like it's not the nice thing to do to raise it with other people. We think, of, we, think of, we, we want to be nice guys, nice women. This is not very nice. Do we remember that holiness is not the same as niceness? That holiness, that the holy love of Christ is not a kind of generic warmth like, I want to be a nice guy. It's a pursuit of all that is good and a hatred of evil. That's what we looked at last week, the love, the pure love that Christ has for us that is, becomes our love. Actually, the loving thing to do is help them point out their sin. If, some of you may feel heavy. You may think, surely this is just for really extreme cases. It need not be heavy. It, it should be done in humility. In gentleness, in a spirit of saying, I, actually, I, I need to bring this to you, but I'm also aware that I've done this, this, and this. It need not even necessarily include a, I think you sinned in this way. It can start with a, I feel hurt by this. What went on? Can we explore this? It need not always assume sin. So we deny it. We need to stop denying it. We avoid it. I mean, I think it's even worse. We, we sometimes just stop talking to someone. We just drift away from them. We say, well, look, you know, they've hurt me. I'm not going to engage with them. No, I'm not saying that you need to be best friends with everyone. But that avoidance is deeply in contradiction with the way that Christ has united us together. Deeply in contradiction that we are a family together. We don't ghost our family. We don't ghost the church. Occasionally this happens in the church. Someone takes offense at something that's preached in the pulpit and they, and they drift away from the church without talking to us. I think that's, that's not in the spirit of this passage. And thirdly, I think this is a really, really, this one I can, I've, I can actually relate to all three of them. But um, gossip, gossip, talking about this with other people. Litigation in the court of public opinion. When you go to another, you don't talk to the person who hurt you, but you go to somebody else. Why? Because you don't want resolution. What you want is vindication. You want to be able to say, hey, I, I, did, this happened to me and can't you believe it? And didn't you know, look at what they did. We're not trying to resolve the problem. Sometimes it might be done in the, in, the, in, the, in the spirit of that, but actually what you're doing is seeking to justify yourself, seeking to prove why they're, right and you're, why they're wrong and you're right. Gossip, talking negatively behind someone's back, it's not of Christ. Slander, it could be potentially slanderous. You'd be saying something that's not even true because it's your perception and maybe that's not the full reality. It, it undermines trust in a relationship when someone feels that you're saying something behind their back. They can't trust you anymore. The irony is that you, what could have been quite a small thing, by going and talking to other people about it, you make it ten times worse. Donnie Griggs, who um, leads a church in the Advanced Network, speaks about the idea in his eldership team where, they, where if someone is speaking to another elder about something another elder has done, 
behind their back, essentially. They say you've got 24... When that happens, they say you've got 24 hours to tell them before I tell them. He said, look, we're not going to let like, festering gossip happen in this team. We're going to be a team that trusts each other. So if you're say something else to some, someone about someone else, you have to go and tell them in 24 hours or we're going to tell them. I think that's great. Doesn't, by the way, this doesn't mean you don't talk to a trusted friend outside the situation. Doesn't mean you don't seek to process your, your emotions and pray with someone outside the situation. But then you're seeking to address it. What's clear is denying avoidance gossip, none of these actually solve the problem. Actually, Christ wants you to pursue reconciliation. It means a willingness to confront, gently, lovingly, humbly raising where they've hurt you, checking your heart if there's anything you've done. And if you're on the receiving end, listening to what they're saying, looking for the grain of truth, even if you feel the overall thing they're saying is unfair. It works both ways, by the way. Matthew 5, Jesus gives instructions that if your brother has something against you, if you feel like somebody else has got something, if they got angry, you've got to address it with them before taking your offering in the temple. It's speaking of an urgency. If you are aware that somebody else has something against you, you're the offender, so to speak, you've got to address it. Just the same. What I want you to see is the urgency of Christ in seeking reconciliation. Christ was urgent in coming to, coming to the world, dying on the cross, in his death, bringing reconciliation between humanity and God, between all those who respond to him and believe in him. Christ relentlessly pursued reconciliation with us through, despite the opposition, despite all the people who, who, who sought to stop him from that in various ways sought to rebuke him. Now, he went to the cross in the active pursuit of reconciliation. Just as Christ was anything but passive in pursuing reconciliation, so we should be anything but passive in pursuing reconciliation with each other. Collectively committing to not to allow hurt and grievances to fester, but address them together. But this is only really half of the picture. The other really important principle we're going to see here is a willingness to forgive. Christians are unique in having the power for reconciliation. The power for reconciliation. Because because we have been forgiven, we can forgive. And it is this forgiveness that we know both the reality and the power of that we have received, that we must then pass on to the community. See, in verse 17, uh, Paul instructs them, repay no one evil for evil. In verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. He's saying, rather than revenge, no, seek to peaceably love the other people who've hurt you. This presupposes that you've forgiven them. By the way, I think what he's describing here, and we're going to see this next week, is really a posture towards outsiders, a posture towards the enemies of the church who might persecute you. But if it's true of how you treat those outside the church who might persecute you, it should be even more true of how we commit and love and walk together as a community who follow Christ. Colossians 3, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. This is the mantra. This is the defining ethic, in many ways, of our relationship together. The gospel celebrates the reality and the power of forgiveness. This is why we're called Grace London. We're rejoicing in the grace and mercy of God. We recognize that our lives are changed forever because we have received the forgiveness of Christ. And so we must let that then be the, the, the shaping everything about the way we relate to each other. This means forgiveness is the standing imperative of the Christian. 
Think about the story of the unmerciful servant. In Matthew 18, the servant owes his master something, if I've done my sums correctly, about the equivalent of 300 to 400,000 pounds. And, uh, the, and he pleads with the master, and the master forgives him. And, uh, and then he finds someone else. He finds that this servant who's been forgiven a huge debt, hundreds of thousands of pounds, goes and fi- sees another servant who, again, if I've done my maths right, probably owes him about 10,000 pounds in today's money. He's been forgiven a huge amount. And yet, rather than show mercy to that other servant, he, he shows him nothing of the sort and sends him effectively to debtor's prison. He, he sends him, uh, he, and yet the master finds out. What does he do? He chastises him. He imprisons him. The whole point of that story is Jesus is drawing a, dre- a great straight line between the mercy that you've received from Christ and therefore the mercy that must shape and define the way you relate to others. He's saying if you've received forgiveness, it must change the way you relate to others. And if there is unforgiveness in your life, then at best that's in deep contradiction to the forgiveness you've received and at worst you haven't even understood the forgiveness that you've received. How many times? How many times should I forgive someone? Peter asks around the time of that story. Perhaps no surprising, he sees this as a big deal. 77 times. Jesus is saying infinite times. But then someone says, but don't you know what they've done? You know, if, you, you, if I tell you you've got to forgive that person in your life who you secretly deep down are holding kind of deep resentment towards, don't you know what they've done to me? What you've got to see is forgiveness is not denying what someone's done to you. Forgiveness is looking directly at the evil that's been done to you and wiping away the debt. C.S. Lewis says, real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. Wholly reconciled. Forgiveness means ripping up the debt, dealing with that debt that that person owes you in its entirety, not holding on to it. Forgiveness is not identical to forgetting, but once you forgive someone, it should lead over time to forgetting what they've done to you. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrong. If you really love someone, if you've really forgiven them, you've, you've stopped the record of wrong. And why this is so important is because I, I think whenever we're doing reconciliation, we need to understand that we are, the really important thing is we are forgiving and we are washing all the grit out of that relationship. By forgiving, by verbally saying to someone, I sinned against you, and by, by saying to them, I forgive you, you are dealing with all the lingering issues that might otherwise color that relationship. Forgiveness is absolutely essential to the resolution of any kind of conflict between two people. If you don't do that, actually, then it's no real forgiveness. There's no real reconciliation. And reason, I actually think when you really understand the power of forgiveness, of washing out from that, from that um, relationship or getting rid of any grit that might otherwise kind of jam the gears of your relationship, actually, reconciliation becomes a really attractive idea. Suddenly you think, I'm looking forward to this. I know it's going to be hard, but after this, we're going, to be, we're going to be clear. We're going to be good. I mean, who of you has really had to reconcile with a friend? And as a result, afterwards, if you really reconcile, if you really forgive, your friendship is stronger, not less strong, because you know you had to weather that storm. You had to deal with it, and there was forgiveness. There was power. And so we can move on with a new kind of battle-hardened harmony that actually has been through the storm together, and now we're closer than ever because we have forgiven each other. Forgiveness is not meant to just be a theoretical concept, something that we just know that theoretically Jesus has forgiven us. It's meant to be a reality, a tangible um, part of our relationships together. And I know as you forgive others, you are modeling the forgiveness that you've received. I don't know about you, but I love being forgiven. 
I feel really good when I've been forgiven. (laughs) All those of you, put up your hand if you had to forgive me. I'm very grateful for it. (laughs) It's hard and it's costly. And if it wasn't hard and it wasn't costly, then it wouldn't be forgiveness. But it's powerful because Christ forgave us. It means the forgiveness of Christ must permeate our community. As we forgive each other, we're modeling the forgiveness we've received. And it's like the forgiveness of the Father flows through each person. Imagine for a moment the church is like a big, on a big mat, on a big picture, where each person is receiving kind of water from the Father. And through that person, that water is then flowing into a big lake within our, at the center of our life together. Each one of us receives the forgiveness from God, and each one of us passes on that forgiveness to the community. And suddenly that forgiveness that we share is like this big lake, this big big lake that we can splash around in and enjoy because we've each received the forgiveness of the Father. The church should be absolutely saturated, it's absolutely full of the forgiveness as each one of us passes on what we've received. Community that's bound together, that's not fearful of sin, because they know we've got a power that can overcome this sin that we will inevitably commit to each other. It's the very opposite of the cancel culture, of the ghosting each other, and of the uh, discarded friendships that so often litter our society. Thirdly, an attitude. Humility is essential for harmony. This is, we need an attitude for reconciliation. If the essential characteristic that, re- that will enable our reconciliation together is humility, embodying the humility of Christ to each other. It's no coincidence that in this instruction around harmony in verse 16, there's an instruction also not to be proud. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The NIV, do not be proud or conceited. By the way, do you see the test of whether you're proud or conceited? Are you willing to associate with the lowly? If you carry around in yourself a subtle sense of superiority to some people, whether that's those who are financially poor or another group of people, actually you haven't really got the humility that Christ is describing. When you're willing to engage with everyone, when you're not carrying any sense of elitism, a sense of superiority, then you know you've got the humility of Christ. Actually, I think the humility that really, why humility is so essential to conflict resolution is because humility means knowing the reality of the human heart, of knowing ourselves, of not being uh, deceiving ourselves about the of the sin within each of us. Humility is essential for, for conflict reconciliation and harmony for a few reasons. First of all, humility allows you to forgive someone else. I heard this once, and it I found it so powerful. You cannot forgive someone if you think you're better than them. You cannot forgive someone if you think you're better than them. This is true in my experience. And I think it's true because if you think you're better than someone, rather than seeking to deal with the the common mutual sin between you, you will instead be seeking to prove, either in your own heart or to others, your superiority to that person. Humility is essential if you are going to forgive others because you cannot forgive someone if you think you're better than them. Humility enables you to search for the wrongdoing in your own behavior rather than let your inner lawyer take over. Humility essentially is saying, because I know the nature of the human heart, because I know my own heart, I am not surprised when someone comes to me and says, I've sinned. In our marriage, we talk about the idea that that almost always we're working with the assumption that there has been sin on both sides in in somewhere, either in the behavior or in the attitude. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we say sorry for things that aren't true. We don't deny that. I'm not 
for a minute suggesting you should do that. What I'm saying is, starting with an assumption that my heart is deceitful above all things, and I need to look for the sin in me whenever I'm being challenged. It means when someone challenges you, you don't start immediately defending yourself. You actually say, if they actually knew the real, the reality of who I was, if they saw every part of my behavior, then actually it wouldn't just be this thing they're bringing to me. It'd be this thing, this thing, this thing, and this thing. Actually, humility means that you know your heart. You're prepared for conflict because you say that is the human heart. That is, that is our, our nature. We're suspicious of our own motives. We tell ourselves we're acting out of love. Actually, is it because we're, we've got an axe to grind? We've got a, a grudge against someone because they hurt us. It's so, it, we, there's a suspicion around, around just wanting to listen to others because you know you haven't got a monopoly on the truth. Humility is essential, therefore, for reconciliation. But it's also our essential response to the cross. You might say, this humility sounds implausible. If you're, not, if you're not a Christian, you say, how on earth could someone have this attitude? I think it is the only attitude we can have in light of the cross. It says, your sin was so grievous that Christ had to die for you. So in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised then about the reality of sin in our lives. It means that a Christian no longer needs to masquerade, to, to trying to put on a front for other people, to pretend they're better than they are, or they need to kind of do, engage in some great act of self-deception where they're assuaging themselves of their guilt as they say, well, I'm not that bad, and oh, well, look at that person, I'm better than them. Or, you know, a Christian need not do that because they're confronted by the grim reality of human nature in themselves. You know, that's why marriage, one, book, one writer on marriage said, when two sinners say, I do, when, when you conflict in your marriage, you shouldn't be surprised about that. That's what happens when two sinners live together. They're going to hurt. They're going to conflict. They're going to sin. They need to reconcile. But as we, as we take on the humility, as we take on the example of Christ, think about Christ's humility, his willingness to... He had done no wrong. He's the only one who uniquely was perfect. And yet he came down. He condescended to come down to be, experience the humility and the indignity and the shaming of the cross. We see Christ's humility, and we seek to embody that humility to one another. And when we do that, that is beautiful. Why? Because Christ is beautiful. Humility is beautiful because Christ is beautiful, and Christ is, is, is the very picture of humility. That humility means we have a radical solidarity with one another, even though we're, radically, we're different in all sorts of different ways. Some of us might think we're higher than others, but yet, actually, that's not true anymore. We say, no, we, have, we are all one in Christ. There's no... no superiority anymore it means we are people kneeled before the cross and when you're kneeling you can't look down on other people as we kneel before the cross i don't know there's a lovely image i thought which captured this really well which fasola might put on the screen here this is a picture someone uh, painted for his wife before they got met on the day that gave it to her on the day of his wedding day and i love it it was it was his kind of intention of this is what i want our marriage to be two of us kneeling before the cross together and put, laying everything our anxieties and our sin at the foot of the cross but i think it's a picture of christian community a picture of people kneeling before the cross together and walking in humility thanks for solo so lastly then i want to suggest you it's not just humility it's not just a posture towards reconciliation. It's not just an ability to forgive. This draws us together in a perseverance towards unity, a perseverance after harmony. Harmony requires commitment. Think about that devotion in the, in Roman, in the chapter, in the verses earlier, when it talked about a love, be devoted to one another, the NIV put it. Think about 
the way a family member loves another. Think about a parent, the way they love a child who keeps being naughty, but they continue day after day showing them grace and teaching them the way to go. That love, that patient, persevering love, that is the love, that is the commitment that we must embody together in our perseverance after harmony. That means we're patient with one another. It means we forgive each other 77 times. It means we can't say, no, sorry, you're, you're fired from the church, so to speak. You're, I mean, yes, there is case of church discipline. We'll come back to that another time. But there's, there's, a, there's a sense of we're family to each other. We love each other. We're committed to one another. We cannot say, I'm done with you. Isn't that wonderful? I've talked before in marriage, the, the great joy that comes from committing to one another, of locking yourselves together and saying, we're here forever. And I think that should, in some sense, be how we operate as a church. Why? Why do we have this perseverance? Because the mission of Christ is bigger than any hurt or ego or conflict that we might have together. We're like a team. You know, think about a team that's really well run together. They say, you know, we're going to conflict. We're going to hurt each other. But the goal that we are united together about is bigger than anything that might happen between us. And because of that sense of the mission of Christ is so important, so essential, we're willing to deal with all sorts of mess that might come up between us. We're willing to keep short accounts. We're willing to deal with our ego. We're willing to confess sin because we want to be a united body on mission for Christ, for his glory, worshipping him, enjoying him together. That mission trumps everything else. It means we need to be willing to persevere for each other because we have something much more important than nursing our ego and withdrawing from one another. That's not of Christ. But really because ultimately we embody the persevering love of Christ. Christ is persevering in his love towards the church. The church will have false teachers sometimes, will have leaders who fail. The church will dilly, uh, have dalliance with, with uh, wrong teaching or sin. And yet Christ is committed to the church. Think about that picture in Ephesians 5 of, of Christ loving his bride, of washing her with the word, of seeking to present her in, in perfection at the last day. That is Christ's posture of persevering love towards the church. That is Christ's posture of persevering love towards you. It's not like Christ ever says, sorry, 77 times, you're done, you're out now. He is persevering towards you, and so we must persevere for one another. When we take all of this together, what does it mean? It means we are to be a a community that embodies the reconciliation of Christ. That 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 pushes hard in together. That that embodies a deep love, a genuine love that we spoke about last week. That because of those deep relationships, expects to experience conflict, expects to experience sin against each other. And yet relentlessly pushes towards each other. Relentlessly confesses sin. Relentlessly addresses conflict. Relentlessly adopts a posture of forgiveness, of patience, of perseverance. Ephesians 4 talks about bear with one another in love. A community that embodies the reconciliation that we have received from Christ. Remember we spoke last week about how the love that we have together embodies the love of Christ. So too the reconciliation that we share together the forgiveness that we share together the humility that underpins that attitude embodies and points to the beauty of christ the more we take seriously the reconciliation and forgiveness that we've received from christ the more that must permeate every part of our lives together that is the forgiveness that we must drink in as we come into worship now i want to invite you to come and dwell, to come and chew, to come and savour that forgiveness and reconciliation that we've received, to come and marvel at it. We are so, sometimes we're so like, yeah, yeah, Jesus has forgiven me, 
No, Jesus has forgiven you. How? You, you should be saying inside yourself, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve it. It's incredible, this forgiveness we've received. And that the forgiveness then should saturate us, should create a beautiful countercultural community which is so different to the rest of our society. It's full of forgiveness and reconciliation in response to what we've received. Isn't that beautiful? Should we do that together, brothers and sisters? Should we commit to that? Guys, why don't you come up? I'm going to pray for us. This is a chance, guys, to do some business with God as I pray. And we'll stay seated for the first part of the song. So you've got a chance to, to bring before to God anywhere that you feel like he's speaking to you and challenging you. Lord, we want to come to you now and recognize our need for your forgiveness. Recognize our hearts, the reality of our hearts, the inner lawyer that seeks to defend ourselves, the superiority that means we don't hang out with those people, the sense of division that so easily emerges in our hearts. And yet we want to rejoice, Lord, that you have reconciled us, that you've reconciled us to yourself, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that we are united with you forever, for eternity, in loving unity, harmony. We're so grateful that there is no lack of peace between us and you. And Lord, we thank you that you have reconciled us together in one body. That that is the reality, that we've been formed into a body, into a family. Lord, we want to be a family that honors you. We want to be a family that glorifies you. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to embody your humility. Help us to display the power of your forgiveness and your reconciliation. Help us to be Christ to each other. Help us to show people your beauty as we live an ethic of forgiveness and reconciliation. Live an ethic of love. Display your beautiful, powerful, glorious love. Glorious love, Lord, that the world might see you. The world might see you and see your glory. Come, Lord Jesus. We can't do it on our own. Come, Lord Jesus. We'd be fools to think we could do this in any other way except by your Spirit's power. So, Lord, come. Come, change us. Lead us to the foot of the cross. Lead us to kneel before you. As we drink in and we just taste again your glorious, glorious grace. Hallelujah. Amen.